Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Ni'ima Novetsky, and today we'll be turning to Vayikra Paragidzayin, Chapter 17. Like most of Sefer Vayikra, it deals with cultic issues, but along the way, it also raises several fundamental questions about proper worship of Hashem and the sanctity of life. Let's begin with an overview of the chapter as a whole. The chapter divides into two main sections. The first deals with the prohibitions of slaughtering and sacrificing outside of the Mikdash, and the second with laws of blood. Each of these further subdivides into two. According to many, though as we'll soon see not everyone, the first unit includes two separate discussions, one regarding non-sacrificial slaughter of animals, and the second focusing on sacrificial slaughter. Similarly, the laws of blood split into two and include both the prohibition not to eat blood and the obligation to cover it. The chapter closes with one last set of laws dealing with purification from nevelot and trifot, animals who die on their own or who were killed without proper slaughter. This structure emerges from the text itself as the Torah begins each of the first four units of the chapter with an identical opening formula, ish ish mi beit Yisrael asher, each man from Israel who will do something. Thus, Verse 3 speaks of each man from the house of Israel who will slaughter. Verse 8 mentions each man from the house of Israel who will bring an offering. Verse 10 deals with each man who will eat blood. And verse 13 with each man who will spill blood. The four topics of our chapter. The last somewhat tangential section of the chapter has its own distinct introduction. Chol nefesh asher tochal nevila mentioning every soul rather than every man. Today, we'll focus on the first half of the chapter, and Amir Tershem will continue with the laws of blood tomorrow. So let's look at the verses inside. The chapter opens, Vayidaber Hashem el Moshe Limor, Daber el Aharon ve'el Banav ve'el Kol Bnei Yisrael. Hashem commands Moshe to speak to both Aaron and his children, and to all of Israel, hinting that whatever is about to be commanded relates to both the priests and the nation as a whole. Va'amarta alehem, zehadavar asher tiva Hashem limor. And you shall say to them, this is the matter that Hashem commanded, saying. Though we often tend to ignore verses which speak of Hashem addressing Moshe or the nation, in our verse, we have a very specific opening. Hashem doesn't just say, tell B'nai Yisrael X or Y command, but rather, he says to say, this is the matter which Hashem commanded, which when you think about it, is somewhat redundant. So though the language of Zehazavar sounds fairly straightforward, actually, when we look to its uses in Tanakh, we see a very interesting pattern, one that's noted already in the Gemara in Bavli Bavabacha Davchaf. In most of the cases in which commands are introduced with this language, Zehazavar, the command spoken of is a one-time command, a command not meant for all future generations, but rather for a specific group of people or a specific era. For example, for example, the formula Zehazavar is used when Hashem specifies that the people must collect only an Omer's worth of mana, a mitzvah relevant only for the generation of the wilderness. Similarly, the language is used when speaking of gathering donations to build the Mishkan and when consecrating Aharon, his children, and the tabernacle. 
or one-time events. This would seem to suggest that whatever is to follow in our chapter two is not a law for all future generations, but specific to the people being addressed by Moshe, the generation of the wilderness. In our chapter though, this isn't so simple to say because a few verses later on in verse seven, we read something that seems to imply the exact opposite. That verse states, This shall be a statute forever, throughout their generations. So on one hand, we have a verse that seems to imply that whatever is to follow is a one-time command, meant only for the generation of the wilderness. And then in contrast, we have a different verse that seems to suggest that whatever we're about to learn about is a chokal olam, is a statute that applies forever. We'll come back to these somewhat contradictory formulas as we learn some more, and we'll see how they play a role in understanding the prohibitions of the chapter. So let's move to the body of the command. Ish ish mi beit Yisrael, asher yishchat shor o chasev o ez b'machaneh, o asher yishchat michutz l'machaneh. Any man who slaughters an ox, a lamb, or a goat, in the camp or outside the camp, and he hasn't brought it to the tent of meeting to offer it as an offering to Hashem before the tabernacle. Blood shall be imputed to that man. And that man shall be cut off from among his people, punished with what is known as karit. In short, the verses appear to be saying that when coming to slaughter an animal, we must make sure that we do so not outside in the camp, but rather that we bring it to sacrifice in the Ohomoed, in the Mishkan. The next three verses give the reasoning behind the command. But before we delve into them, we need to understand the nature of the prohibition itself. And to do so, we must compare our verses that we just read with verses eight and nine which at first glance, at least, sounds very similar. So skipping ahead, we read, Pasuk Chet, Va'alehem tomar, Ish ish mi beit Yisrael u'menhager asher gor betocham, asher ya'aleh ola ozavach. You shall say to them, Any man of Israel or of the strangers who live among them who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice, Ve'alpetach oha mo'ed lo yivienu la'asot oto la'ashem, and he doesn't bring it to the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to Hashem, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. On first read, the two sets of verses appear to be speaking of the same exact case and punishment. Both mention that ish ish mi beit Yisrael, any man from Israel, who will slaughter or sacrifice outside of the Migdash, and he does not bring that animal to the Ohomoed, he will incur the punishment of karet. As we read, we wonder, is the Torah simply repeating for emphasis and speaking of only one prohibition? Or is there some distinction between the two cases, which perhaps we missed at first read? When we look carefully at the, sets of at the two sets of verses, we can see that there are actually several differences in language between the two passages that are worth noting. First, the addressee. Verse 3 specifies only ish ish mi beit Yisrael, every man from Israel. While verse 8 adds, umin hager asher yagor betocham, 
the stranger living among you. Second, the verb used. While verse 3 says, Asher Yishchat, speaking of slaughter, verse 8 says, Asher Ya'alef, to raise as an offering. Third, the object of the verb. Verse 3 specifies an ox, lamb, and a goat. While verse 8 mentions an olaf, a burnt offering, and a zebach, a sacrifice. Finally, the punishment. While both sets of verses mention karet, being cut off, only the first adds in the comparison to spilling blood. How significant, if at all, are these differences? What can we learn from them? Commentators debate the issue, leading to different understandings of both the relationship between these two sets of verses and the nature of the prohibition laid forth in each. According to Rashi, the two sets of verses really do speak of only one topic, what is known as the prohibition of shchutechut, the prohibition to slaughter and offer any sacrifice to Hashem outside of the Mikdash. Rashi suggests that both sets of verses speak of kachim, animals which are being brought as a sacrifice. Despite the fact that the words ola and zevach do not appear in the initial verses, which instead mention simply oxen, lamb, and goats, it's assumed that these animals are listed because those are the animals that are brought as korbanot. As proof, Rashi points to verse 4, which states, explicitly mentioning they're being brought as an offering, as such, he suggests, it must be understood that the entire unit, from verse 3 all the way through verse 9, is all referring to a context of sacrifice, and that the variation in language is not significant. The obvious question, of course, then, is why does the Torah repeat the same prohibition twice in the span of just five verses? And why have two distinct introductory formulas, ish ish mi beit Yisrael, if all the verses refer to the same case? Rashi responds that the verses speak of two separate stages in the sacrificial process, the slaughtering and the burning on the altar. While the first set of verses warn against slaughtering a sacrifice outside of the Mikdash, using the language asher yishchat, the second set speaks of offering and burning the animals, asher ya'aleh. We might still question, however, why is the second prohibition necessary? Couldn't it have been learned by a priori argument from the first? If external slaughter is prohibited, well, obviously, so would burning be. Regardless, for Rashi, the entire unit speaks about one issue only, that all sacrificial service must be done in the Midash, in one centralized place, and not on private altars outside. This is a statute for all future generations as well, hence the statement, Chukat olam he would suggest that the usage of the phrase we discussed before, Zehazavar Asher Tziva Hashem, is somewhat exceptional in our verses, being used even though the command is not related to a one-time event. Rav Yosef Bechorshor, a 12th century French Tosafist, and others disagree with Rashi. They suggest that really the two sets of verses refer to two distinct sets of laws, the first few verses refer to a prohibition of non-sacrificial slaughter, slaughter of chulin, non-sanctified animals. Hashem commands the generation in the wilderness 
that they are not allowed to simply slaughter a domesticated animal in order to eat of its meat. If one wants to eat meat, one needs to bring the animal as a sacrifice, and only then is it permitted to eat from it. This prohibition is known as Isur Basar Ta'ava, the prohibition of to slaughter and eat meat just for pleasure and not in the context of a sacrifice. The second set of verses, in contrast, speak of kodshim, of sacrificial slaughter, the prohibition of shkutechut spoken about by Rashi, that we are not allowed to offer sacrifices to Hashem on private altars outside of the Mikdash. This reading has several advantages. First, it accounts for the new opening in verse 8. Since there are two distinct set of laws, it is understandable why each gets its own introduction. Second, it accounts for several of the differences between the two sets of verses that we noted about. The first unit speaks only of slaughtering domesticated animals, specifying an ox, a lamb, and a goat, and makes no mention of an ola or a zevach, since it's not speaking of sacrificial slaughter, but of slaughtering for the purposes of eating meat. Only in the second unit, which focuses on sacrificial slaughter, are such sacrifices named. Second, if eating meat for pleasure is looked down upon and allowed only as part of a sacrificial service, this could explain the added statement found in the first unit only, that if one slaughters outside, dam yechashev la'ishahu, killing animals even for food is considered spilling blood, unless it is sanctified by being part of a sacrificial service. No equivalent statement is found by the second unit dealing with sacrificial slaughter because it's hard to say that sacrificing Tashem, even if outside the Mishkan, is considered spilling blood. As this position holds that the prohibition against Basar Ta'ava, eating meat for pleasure and not as part of a sacrifice, was in place only during the wilderness period, we understand why only B'nai Israel are just in the opening and not also the foreigners who will live among them. There were no sojourners in the desert, and so they are not included in the command. As such, too, the language of Zehadavar, used by one-time commands, is appropriate. This position must still grapple, however, with why later verse 7 states, Chukat olam lahem l'doratam, suggesting that it is for future generations as well. And it would likely claim that the words don't refer to the prohibition of Basar Ta'ava, but to the immediate context of that verse, which we'll speak about later. So to summarize, we have two different ways to read our verses. Either, as Rashi suggests, the entire passage focuses on one topic, the prohibition to sacrifice outside of the Mikdash and the need for centralized worship. Or, as Rabbi Yosef Bechor suggests, it speaks of two related but distinct prohibitions, both non-sacrificial slaughter of Chulin and the sacrificial slaughter of Kadshin. Before we delve into the reasons for these commands, it pays to compare our verses to a similar set of commands found in Dvarim Perik Yudbet, chapter 12 of Dvarim, a chapter which touches on many of the same issues as our unit. There, we read the positive command, but to the place which Hashem your God shall choose out of all of your tribes to put his name there, there you shall come, and there you shall bring your, born, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. The verse mandates centralization of worship, that all sacrifices be brought to the place which Hashem will choose. 
which is, of course, the flip side of the prohibition of our chapter against external sacrifices. In Zvarim, though, the Torah contrasts this command with the following statement. When Hashem your God shall enlarge your border as he has promised you, and you shall say, I want to eat meat because your soul desires to eat meat, you may eat meat after the desire of your soul. In contrast to the obligation to sacrifice to Hashem in the Middash, this verse states that when the people arrive in Israel, if they desire to eat meat for pleasure, they need not travel to the Middash, but will be able to slaughter it as they please wherever. Thus, according to Rav Yosef Bechor both our chapter and Zvarim Perak Yudbet speak of the same two issues, centralization of worship and basar ta'avas, slaughtering meat for food outside of the Middash. But while the Yikra prohibits external slaughtering of meat for food, Dvarim allows it. According to his understanding of the two chapters, while Basar Ta'ava was not allowed in the wilderness, it was allowed after arrival in Canaan. And we must ask, why did the law change? Why would eating meat for food have been prohibited in the wilderness outside of the Mikdash, but allowed outside of the Mikdash in Eretz Yisrael? The verses in Zvarim suggest that the distinction is practical in nature. After arrival in the land, the Mikdash was no longer easily accessible to all. And though Hashem might have still preferred that people sacrifice their meat, he realized that this would not be so feasible for many. And thus, he allowed people to slaughter meat for food, even outside. It's also possible, though, that the reason for the distinction is more fundamental in nature. To understand it, Let's go back to the verses which explain the prohibition in the first place. So returning to the verses that we skipped over earlier in our reading of Vayikra 17, picking up in verse 5. We're told not to slaughter outside the Mikdash. This is so that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to Hashem, to the door of the tent of meeting, to the priest, and sacrifice them for sacrifices of peace offerings to Hashem. And the priest will sprinkle the blood on the altar of Hashem at the door of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasant aroma to Hashem. They shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat idols after which they prostitute. This shall be a statute forever. The verses I just read seem to include both a positive and a negative reasoning for the prohibition of Basar Ta'ava, or according to Rashi, for the prohibition of external sacrifices in general. One, the positive desire that sacrifices be brought to Hashem and their blood be sprinkled on the altar, and two, the need to prevent the possibility, the possibility that people will sacrifice to the Se'irim. It is unclear what exactly this refers to, 
maybe demons, or some other form of idolatry believed in by the people. This second reason suggests that the prohibition of slaughtering for food outside, or according to Rashi, perhaps the reason for the need to sacrifice in the Middash as a whole, was preventative in nature, to help ensure that the people did not instead slaughter and sacrifice to the Sirim, these goat demons, in the desert. Since the Sirim were believed to reside in and rule over the barren lands and wilderness, it's possible that the fear of sacrificing to such demons was much stronger during the 40-year sojourn in the desert. As such, upon arrival in Israel, when the people lived in civilized territory, the prohibition against Basar Ta'ava, external slaughtering of meat for food, was no longer as necessary, and hence the different laws in Sefer Vayikra and Sefer Dvarim. Some commentators go even a step further in associating the prohibitions of our chapter with idolatry, and they suggest that the entire prohibition of external slaughtering or sacrificing was instituted only in the aftermath of the sin of the golden calf. The Hoa Moshe, a 19th century Italian commentator, suggests that really Hashem's original preference was that everyone worship him on private altars wherever they pleased. He points out that in Perakhas and Sefer Shmot, Hashem commands the nation to build earthen or stone altars. These are not mentioned in connection to the Mikdash or the Mishkan, which we haven't yet been commanded to build. And so he suggests that Hashem is referring to private altars and that this is evidence that in Hashem's original plan, he didn't want to limit sacrifices to any individual group or place. His glory is found all over and is thus accessible to all in every place. After the nation's sin, though, Hashem decided that the nation was not worthy of such worship, that they needed limitations and safeguards, and that they could only sacrifice in one central place in the Mikdash. In other words, the sin of the golden calf proved that there was a valid fear lest the people sacrifice to Sirim, to these demon gods, leading to the prohibition against external slaughter and sacrifice. According to Hawa Moshe, when our verses mandate that the people bring their sacrifices inside, this is only a means to an end, to ensure that they do not sacrifice to goat demons outside. There's no other intrinsic good in sacrificing in one centralized location. In fact, had it not been for their sins, we would not be sacrificing in one centralized location, but all over. However, one might disagree with him and suggest that perhaps the command mandating centralization of worship was not just a bidiyabad, not simply a necessary preventative command, but also a desired one. Hashem might actively desire that worship be centralized and that sacrifices be brought to him in the Ohomoed. Why, though, is this desired? Rabag and Rabdavitzvi Hafman suggest that the unitary nature of Hashem mandates a single place of worship. Just as God is one, his temple must be one. Others instead suggest that the command might have less to do with our relationship to Hashem and more to do with our relationship to our fellow man. Shadal thus suggests that the, that the prohibition against private altars is for the good of the nation. Kibiyot v'chol ha'am mikdash echad, yitkatsu kulam le makom echad, 
ביד קשרו ליבותם בקשר האחווה, ביו תמיד לאגודה אחת. He suggests that having one centralized place of worship means that the people need to gather together in worship, and in so doing, they connect not just to Hashem, but to one another. Abar Benel, speaking about the benefits of the mitzvah of Aliyah Regal, explains similarly, pointing out that when everyone comes together from afar, it's natural that someone will have forgotten something, and another will look to provide for them, leading everyone to share and come together in love and peace. So there seems to be two ways of looking at the laws of centralized worship and the prohibition against external sacrifices. They might simply be a preventative measure, ensuring that the nation does not engage in idolatrous types of practices, or the need to sacrifice in the, inside the Mikdash might be beneficial and positive in its own right, either because it highlights the unitary nature of God or because it helps unify the nation. We'll close with one last idea brought by Rabbi Hirsch, who shares the latter approach, also viewing the prohibition of external sacrifice in a positive way. He suggests that the prohibition against external sacrifices is meant to encourage people to fill their lives with spirituality and to remind them that they must always aspire to come to the Kodesh and to encounter God. He posits that to some extent, our chapter and the story of Nadav and Avihu, which opens chapter 16, are flip sides of each other. According to Rav Hirsch, Nadav and Avihu's sin was that of pride, thinking that they were perfect enough to enter the Holy of Holies. They did not reflect on their actions, see the length to which they needed to still travel on the road to perfection, and did not recognize that they were not yet worthy of entering the holiest of sites. It is to prevent such hubris that the procedures of chapter 16 were instituted. Chapter 16 teaches that anyone who wants to cross the threshold into the Kodesh HaKadoshim needs to first reflect on his past, confess his sins, sacrifice and cleanse himself, and then only from a place of humility and a place of purity might he enter. Rav Hirsch suggests that our chapter deals with the opposite problem with the individual who does not even think of trying to enter the Kodesh, the person who does not view closeness to God as being one of the fundamentals of life. Such a person, he says, puts himself on par with the animals who have no aspiration for Kedusha. Our chapter teaches that both extremes are problematic. You should not have such a high estimation of yourself that you assume you can enter the Kodesh whenever you want, that you can go all the way in, we must recognize that we are not on par with God. But on the other hand, we need not degrade ourselves to the level of animals. We should aspire to come close. We must recognize that entering the Kodesh is something to desire and that we should attempt to encounter God wherever we can. Tomorrow, we'll continue with the second half of the chapter, The Laws of Blood.